What would Jesus write to town church, Bister? What would he have to say to our church? What would he have to say to you? Because this is a letter, as Lanx just said, from God to us, to, to all of us. It's a letter from Jesus. In a sense, we're reading someone else's mail. It's a bit creepy, um, but it's not. It's written to the church in Ephesus at the time. And yet, as Lanx explained last week, it's there for all of us. Verse seven in our passage, look down where he makes that really clear. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Plural churches. John's continued use of a number seven, as Lang said, symbolizes perfection. It also indicates this. This is a message for all churches throughout history, including ours here in Bicester. This letter, the next seven letters we're going to look at are for us. To listen to, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by, and to be rebuked by. So let me pray that we would be willing and able to do just that, to be encouraged, to listen, to be challenged, to be rebuked. So let's pray together. Father, help us to see you in all your glory and majesty. Help us have a fresh vision of Jesus today. Help us to listen to what your word has to say, to not... Um, dismiss it. Let's not switch off if we don't like what it says at times. Help us to humbly listen to you. It helps to be encouraged by it as well, as you intended. Amen. Great. Do uh, look down when we have a letter because they all have a similar pattern, which we're going to see. Uh, all of them have an introduction. All of the seven have an introduction. They outline who the letter is from. Uh, all of them have an encouragement. Then all but two of them have a rebuke or a concern. And then we get a conclusion at the end, a conclusion that says, make sure you do this. You listen to this letter. And if you do this, then you'll receive a blessing in eternity. So we're just going to take it in that order. It's the order the Bible was written for us. We're going to take it in that order. We'll look at the introduction first. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, the book of Ephesians written to it, uh, a major city at the time in Asia Minor and modern day Turkey. It's about 60 miles from Patmos, where John uh, is writing this, uh, a major tourist destination. It had one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, uh, a melting pot for many cultures, many nationalities in the Roman Empire. Uh, and it had a significant church as well. Paul visited on his second missionary journey. Uh, he settled there then on his third missionary journey for two and a half years. It was a significant center for reaching the whole empire for Christ. Paul then moved on. He left Timothy. Uh, and then early church tradition says Timothy was replaced by John, writing these words of Jesus now. So John knew this church very well. But it's not John who ultimately writes this letter, is it? Read on with me in verse one. It says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Unlike modern letters, which depending on your age, you may or may not know about, we had... um, We've had our interns this week stuffing letters for something at work. And bizarrely, they didn't know whether to write the address portrait on landscape. Like, that's ridiculous. But they are 21, so we, we kind of let them go. But basically, letters, you normally write who it's from at the end, don't you? Normally at the end, you say that's who it's from. But here we get it right up front. These letters are from Jesus. Uh, interestingly, all the introductions of these letters hark back to the amazing vision we looked at in chapter one. And here we see two amazing things outlined again. He holds the seven stars in his hand. 
the stars, if we remember, they're the, the angels, the messengers to the church. Uh, and so God here speaks with utter authority because the, the church, the messengers who he holds, show us that everything is under his control. It's all about him and for him. The church is, is his. And then this is wonderful. We see he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Does anyone remember what the lampstands are? Anyone? The churches. Thanks, Terry. Good. Good. The churches are the lampstands. So Jesus, he walks among them. He's utterly present as he walks among the churches, which is why at the start of verse two, he can say with such authority, I know your deeds. Because Jesus knows them and he's present. He's present there. He was present amongst the church in Ephesus and he's present here as well. He's present in and among his people. He, he guards, he protects the church. He is never absent. He never goes on holiday. No gathering here at Town Church ever happens that he fails to show up at. No meal in our homes is ever served where Jesus does not sit down with us. No sermon is preached that he doesn't evaluate. No sin is committed that he is unaware. No individual enters this building that he fails to notice. No tear is shed that escapes his eye. No pain is felt that his heart does not share. No decision is made that he does not judge. No song is sung that he does not hear. He knows because he walks among us. I know your deeds. He has complete knowledge of everything we do, everything, all of our lives, which for some of us will be real encouragement and for some will be quite exposing. So he has utter authority to comment here about this church in Ephesus, utter authority and total knowledge. So what will he say? And again, we're thinking, what would he say to us? Because his word, it's not going to be superficial, is it? He knows them. We often judge churches so superficially. <laughs> what kind of coffee does it have? What style of music? What type of venue does it meet in? What does the preacher wear? All the best. What does Jesus say here? It's not going to be superficial. But firstly, let's look here down at the encouragement. Verse two continues. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus firstly praises their hard work. He praises their perseverance. He's noticed their hard work. He's noticed their toil. He's noticed how they've kept going when it's been hard. Maybe the church leadership didn't notice, but Jesus says, I know, I know your hard work. And this is a real encouragement. He sees even when others don't. It's a real encouragement, wasn't it, if you were there a couple of Wednesdays ago at our training when people shared examples of where church family had served them, had loved them. What an encouragement that was to bring them to light and a joy to hear all that's going on. There'll be loads of things which is unseen, though. Loads of things we don't notice. God does. He, he sees the guys on refreshments who get here every week to set up, who spend all morning baking, most of the night washing up. He sees the people who diligently prepare to teach Crash and Junior Church every week. He sees David who gets here faithfully nearly every Sunday to go pick up the gear and set it up and lock it back again to where it gets stored. 
He sees that. He sees the mums who serve each other throughout the week magnificently. So many things they do to drop things around, to share clothes, to share children, all sorts. He sees that. He sees the guys in the pub asking tough questions of each other in growth groups, serving each other through conversation. He sees that. He sees the people defending him in chats with colleagues in the workplace when his name is mocked. So don't be discouraged. God sees all that and he knows it. Others may not, but he does. And he commends them for that. He commends them for their hard work, their endurance. He also then commends them for their, their, I'll call it their orthodoxy. Verse two, it says, I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Then verse six, um, it says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we're not, we're not 100% sure um, who the Nicolaitans were, but we see them again in the third letter. So maybe uh, whoever preached on that one can tell us who they were, but we don't really know. But maybe there are the false teachers mentioned here. Maybe these are people claiming to be apostles. But the Ephesian church is commended for their hatred of their false teaching, for sticking to the truths of the Bible and not compromising. This church has real discernment, cannot tolerate false teaching. And, and now maybe this is a bit shocking to us in today's culture. This is praised. God hates stuff. He's a God of love, but he hates stuff as well. Because... <coughs> In today's culture, tolerance is, is always a good thing, isn't it? It's one of the few absolutes left. You must be tolerant. It's one of the main British values. I don't know if it's still here. It probably is. Yeah, British values back there. I'm pretty sure one of them up there will say tolerance. All British school inspectors are told to look for this in all British schools, the fundamental value, tolerance. And in a sense, that's great. We want to praise that. We should promote tolerance if we understand it in the way it's been understood for many, many years, which is a recognition that other people can say things even if we profoundly disagree with them. We, we believe in free speech, this is tolerance. But over the years, there's been a change of the meaning of tolerance, hasn't there? It's become a really slippery word. In today's society, in our today's culture where there's not really absolute truths, the argument comes that because we cannot know anything, then there's a chance that no one might be right. So that anyone who says with authority, I think this is true and this is untrue, I think this is right and this is wrong, under this new definition of tolerance, they're described as being completely intolerant. Maybe that's something you've experienced yourself as you've had conversations about things. And yet Jesus, he speaks truth, he has authority. He can say he hates the practices of these people. The Bible is absolute truth. So in a church, there cannot just be tolerance of every viewpoint. When something is clearly taught in the Bible, when someone comes in and teaches something that isn't taught, which is leading people astray, the church is right in not tolerating wrong teaching. The church in Ephesus was praised for this. Wrong teaching or if it's wrong behaviour. We can trust that this church was working through the principles we see in Matthew 18, which Jesus gives to churches about church discipline. They're in our church handbook. You can read them if you want. Which in today's culture can seem so harsh. But we need to remember these are driven out of love. These are driven by love. Jesus' words are driven by love for this church. They're commended for their hard work. They're commended for their orthodoxy. And finally, they're commended for their perseverance. Verse three, you have persevered and have endured hardships by name 
and I've not grown weary. Because it's, it's implied, isn't it, that if this church was not tolerating everything, then it would lead to struggle and to strife for them, wouldn't it? Again, this may, you may recognise this from your own work, your own conversations. Uh, this place, Ephesus, it was a centre for emperor worship. They kind of, this massive empire, the Roman Empire, one of the ways they tried to keep it together was by emperor worship. You'd have to you'd have a statue of Caesar. You'd have to recognise him, maybe bow down before him. You needed to acknowledge that if you were going to progress in your job, in your career as well. That would have been essential to be part of a trade guild, to trade unions. You'd have to have... Um, bowed down and worshipped Caesar in some way, shape or form. And it's implied here that this church in Ephesus, the people in this church in Ephesus, they stood against that and it caused them strife. In some cases, it's reported there was death. People died for standing up for the truth. But, but normally it was more mundane. It's more recognisable for today's society here in Britain. Maybe a lack of progress, lack of uh, respect, mutterings behind their back. Because we too, don't we? We live in a world uh, and we refuse to bow down to its gods. We will see there is a cost if we do that. Like the, the colleague in the office who won't join in on the, the office WhatsApp chat, which is just through, through, full of filth. Or a friend who doesn't want to hang out with you anymore because they say you're so arrogant for holding a viewpoint which they disagree with, which the Bible has something clear on. That all takes guts and can make you feel excluded, can't it? Jesus said he knows. I know. He knows about that hard work. He knows about your hard work. Orthodoxy, perseverance. It's a great encouragement. Hopefully it is a great encouragement. These letters expose us. They challenge us. They encourage us. And then we get, in verse 4, the rebuke. And I think it's a really firm warning for us today on one area of their church life. I think this is such a danger for me. It's been challenging reading it and I'm working through this this week. I think it's a danger for us, for our church, maybe for churches like ours especially, to look around and go, we think we're sound. We teach the Bible. Bible, we love the Bible. It's great. We don't sing certain songs, maybe, because we don't think they're, they're helpful. We train our junior leaders well so that they can teach faithfully. So we pat ourselves on the back and go, well done us. We're orthodox. We're, we've got that sorted. Let's be careful, though, because hear this from Jesus. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. He says this church is strong on doctrine but weak on passion for Jesus. They've forgotten their first love. If you're new here, if you're exploring Christianity, the, the Bible is a love story first and foremost. It gets a bad press, but it's a love story first and foremost. And this is why he writes this letter for them and for us to read, because he loves us. It's a parent who lacks love, who doesn't discipline their child. It's a teacher who doesn't mark their kids' homework, who doesn't love their students. Jesus warns and rebukes us here because he loves them. He wants to not crush us, but for us to, to improve, to grow in our love for him. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Commentators, uh, they do divide on exactly what this love is, whether it's a love for others, whether it's a love for outsiders or a love for God. But I, 
I think I take it that even if if others are in view, the engine that drives that love for others or the engine that drives the love for outside is a deep love for God. It's a picture of love. It's a love story. Think with me of two, two lovers, maybe 10 years into marriage now. Think initially, maybe you've had this. Initially, you want to spend every waking moment together. Texting constantly. Phone calls all night when not together. Annoying their friends as they go off their grid. Their obsession grows. Maybe their clothes start to change. Get a bit smarter. That is first love. That, that flutter, that joy, that delight, that quickening of the pulse when your phone beeps. Is it them? That embrace when you see them after a few days. And Jesus is saying it's like this church is now decades into a loveless marriage. This is written to this church about 60 years after it started. It's like a loveless marriage with no intimacy. Maybe it's a bit like they walk in the door and there's a, hello dear, as they get home from work. Maybe a peck on the cheek. Keeping up appearances. uh, On the surface, everything's okay. But underneath, it's dead. Just going through the motions. Really happens in relationships, doesn't it, very sadly? Maybe you know that pain yourself. Uh, And it can happen in our relationship with God because it is a relationship. The Oxford Mail had an article a few years ago. Um, A man stopped with his wife at a petrol station um, somewhere down the A34. Um, They filled up with gas and then the car left, drove on, and 42 miles away from the petrol station, the man looked over to ask his wife for a toffee. Realised he'd left her at the petrol station. It's a true story. Forsaken their first love. That's the picture here, and it's incredibly sad, isn't it? What would Jesus write to town church in 60 years' time? Would we even be around still? Or would, like the church in Ephesus, would we have had our lampstand removed and no longer exist? Go to Ephesus now and it's Muslim. Hardly a Christian in sight. Friends, Jesus follows up on his warnings and his warning here is in verse six, verse five, sorry. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He did it with Ephesus and he can do it with us. The Ephesians were zealous for right doctrine. Then again, so were the Pharisees. Paul told his disciple Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine. Such a close relationship there. Their passion had seeped away in this church in Ephesus. Why? How how could they? How could we maybe? You're challenged by this reading this. How could they maybe have lost their first love? How could it become dampened? Because God, he, he knew their hard work, didn't he? But why did they work hard? Was there maybe wrong thinking in this church in Ephesus that they felt they needed to earn God's love? Was their hard work just born out of duty? Keeping up appearances, routine? Or was it born out of a love for other people? He knew their hard work. He knew their orthodoxy. But what drove that? Was it a a love for other people? Because wrong behavior and wrong teaching destroys people. Is that why they love the truth? Was it a love for God? 
or had it slipped into a sort of harsh judgmentalism which loves to point out the errors in others. Orthodoxy without love is incredibly ugly. Constantly wagging, wagging the finger at others but not looking at our own church lives. He knew their perseverance, but what drove that? Was it just grim determination? Or is the engine a love for God that is prepared to face the cost of exclusion? They've lost their love and he sent them a warning. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Because a church with no love has no life and with no life comes no light. The church is meant to be a light to the nations, reflecting the awesomeness of God, shouting loudly about the love of God. But a church without love will have its light removed. And sadly, we see with Ephesus, it eventually did. At the end of the book of Ephesians, chapter six, the church is commended for their love. It says this in verse 23 and 24, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. They did not heed the warning. How on earth can you rekindle that first love again? Maybe you're sitting there today and you feel convicted. I felt convicted when I read this. How can we rekindle that first love? And this is where Jesus is so kind, isn't he? He knows us. He knows us and he gives us a sort of three-step guide on how to come back to that first love. Verse five, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Three things, remember, repent, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. Firstly, remember. Wonder what was it like when you first followed Jesus? If you do follow Jesus today. When he first opened your eyes to see him, how he is, when you had that, that sell everything kind of love, that passionate love, what inspired that? The gospel, the utter scandal of grace found in the gospel. Remember that. John puts it like this in chapter one of Revelation. He says, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. That's how he explains the gospel. Freed us from our sins by his blood so we could be a kingdom and priest to serve God. Friends, the first thing to do is to remember, to meditate on the gospel. We're going to do that a minute in communion. But let's keep doing it with each other not just individually. But remember, this letter was not written to individuals. It was written to the church. We have the corporate responsibility to spur each other on, to remember, to keep reminding each other. Can we become brilliant at this church or reminding each other the awesome truths of the gospel? To pray for each other's hearts. Not just to pray for the practical things. It's, it's easy, isn't it, sometimes when... Maybe people ask us what to pray for, whether we pray for others. Lord, help Phil to get a job. Help this person whose family's members sick, whatever it might be. Isn't that a challenge? Maybe we pray for practical things in people's lives, but also pray for their hearts. Pray for each other's hearts that we might know God more and love him more deeply and passionately overflow with love for him. 
And let's encourage each other as we speak with each other. Do we ever ask each other how it's going with Jesus? Remind people of the truths of the gospel. Spur each other on. Remember the gospel. And remember what it was like when you first grasped the gospel. That seems to be some of the implication. You can see how far you've fallen, it says. Remember when you first began to follow Jesus. Those first days, either individually or our first days as a church as well. Maybe for you, you need to remember the time. Maybe you're at university where there was a mission where you'd seen many people turn to follow Jesus. And you were absolutely confident that anyone, anyone could come and follow Jesus. So you invited people to things. You talked about him. Remember those days. Remember when you couldn't stop reading the Bible, searching to know God more, chatting about it with your friends, wrestling with it. Remember when you weren't just singing because it's something you do or because you like singing, but because your heart was bursting with love for Jesus. We're called to remember. Secondly, we're called to repent. Repent, it just means turn around. It literally to do a 180, to stop your previous behavior. So the question is, the question for the church in Ephesus, and I think it's a question which stands for us today as we ponder, as we think about this is, if this is you, if you feel verse four, if you feel it yourself and you go, yeah, I feel I might have forsaken the love I had at first. The call comes here to stop whatever behavior is dulling your love for Jesus. Stop it. Whatever behavior is dulling your love for Jesus. It's been such a challenge for me this week. Turn away from the way of thinking that makes you just presume on Jesus. Turn away from anything which makes you lose sight of his worth. Turn away from the things that dull your appetite for the Bible. Turn away from any sin. Turn away from the things which steal the time you have for prayer. Turn away from from pride and self-reliance that keeps you from the Bible and prayer in your need of Jesus. Repent. Look at your priorities. Do it. Hear the challenge. Chat about it with your spouse, with your growth groups, with your friends. Stop whatever behavior is dulling your love for Jesus if this is you today. And get someone to hold you to account to it. It's why growth groups are so great. Our small groups, you have until midnight tonight to sign up again for another year. We will show grace if you forget, but please do. You've got an email about it. Repent for my lack of love if you need to. That's the challenge here. I know I needed to this week. A dutiful diligence, not love. You see, when Duncan grows up, my wee boy, when he grows up, he'll be able to tell if I'm reluctantly reading a book with him or playing with him, won't he? Caroline, my wife, doesn't want to be reluctantly having me spend time with her. Your friends and your family can tell if you're just going through the motions, just doing your duty. It's the same with God, repent. And finally, do as you did at first, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. Do as you did at first, not just in actions, but in the heart which flows into the actions. And, and notice here, all of these actions here were immediate. It wasn't going, well, when you feel that love again, then do these things. It would be like if me and Caroline were struggling, if we, it would be like going, oh, I'll take you on a date when I feel like I want to again. Nah, take you on a date now. 
grow that love again, to do these things you did at first and do them. So today, and it's not just actions, but in the heart, today go back to his word and delight in it, that fresh vision of Jesus we looked at, to meditate and mull on that. Go for a walk this week and pray. Practically do something. Read through a psalm and just thank him. Actively try and look at creation around him and just thank him and praise him. Talk to your children about him, maybe. Well, definitely. Practically love others. What an encouragement it was to hear those stories a few weeks ago. Keep doing that. Show hospitality. Hang out with each other. Give sacrificially of your time, of your money. Serve at church. Show love radically. Not because you're trying to earn his love. You have it already, unconditionally, but in response to his love and to help you not forsake your first love. To rekindle it. Do the things you did at first and speak of him. Finally, there's no doubt the Ephesian church was not speaking of Jesus and witnessing to those who didn't know him because if they had no love. That's why a lot of the commentators would say that's possibly what the love of the first forsaken is, their sharing of the gospel. There's many a church in England which dies every year who are doctrinally sound, they're solid, but they never share their faith. They never speak of what God has done for them. They've forsaken their first love and so the church dies. <laughs> One of my bosses at work often says, if you're feeling dry in your faith, if you're feeling distant from God, go and tell someone the gospel. Go and tell someone about Jesus and you'll quickly recapture that first love. It's that challenge for us this week to pray about. As we speak of Jesus, as we do as we did at first, it will guard us against being like this Ephesian church. Ask God for his help for us to rekindle that first love. Remember, repeat, repent. And then we get to the conclusion Verse seven. Whoever is ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, the beginning of each letter picks up on something from chapter one and that fresh vision of Jesus. He's walking amongst the churches. The end of each letter picks up on something from the end of Revelation, that great vision about future glory. It's as if each letter is a mini picture of Revelation because in the middle we can get the challenge of living in a difficult world, facing the temptation to give up. How will we overcome and be victorious to the one who is victorious? How will we do that? Only if we get the whole picture. Look to Jesus, listen to him and keep going. That fresh vision of Jesus, look to eternity to come. Because you may be sitting here today, and I know when I prep this at times, I've had self. You may be looking at yourself, feeling a bit down. You look inside yourself, you feel inadequate, you feel a failure. You may be asking yourself as you read verse four, as you look within yourself, you may have groaned and gone, do I love him enough? The answer is always no, isn't it? It's always no. And if we finish today just looking inside ourselves, we'll feel awful because we need to get the whole vision of Jesus and eternity to come. It's been really wisely said that for every one look within, take 10 looks at him. For every one look within, take 10 looks at him, at Jesus. It's why these letters start with that wonderful vision of Jesus. If you feel your love is weak and pitiful, don't look within, 
look at him. The more you look at him, the more your love will grow. The more we, town church, look at him, the more our love will grow together.